0: Well, please open your Bibles to Revelation 12. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, there should be one not too far away from you, in front of you. And I'm going to encourage you to open the Scriptures to Revelation 12 to follow along. As you've seen, there are a lot of vivid images in the text this morning. And we want to read and apply Revelation responsibly. Um, You can make... This text, along with many chapters in Revelation, say about anything you want. You can look at today's news and find fulfillments of what you just read in the news this morning. You can find it. It doesn't mean it's true. Just like the old popular application that the eagle mentioned here is the airlift helicopter support of America. Okay, We need to be very careful how we handle God's word And we need to ask questions like, what did John mean? And what did the original audience understand by what God communicated through the Apostle John? On one hand, and this is what we're going to see, a little bit of the character of the conflict. On one hand, Satan would like for you to believe he is a myth, a fairy tale. Nothing less fictional than Medusa or a cave troll. And on the other hand, he wants you to believe in his reality and he desires that you bow down and worship him as king. So you've got these competing sort of desires. Revelation chapter 12 has been labeled international myth. International myth. Because stories resembling this can be found in nearly every religion of the ancient world before john wrote so it's called international myth for example you have stories throughout the ancient civilizations of a woman about to give birth to a champion a dragon with seven heads and the champion's defeat of the dragon though it nearly costs him his life international myth for example in egyptian religion the mother goddess Isis was pursued by the red dragon Typhon, who has a hundred heads. He is the father of all monsters. She flees to an island where she gives birth to the sun god Horus. In Ugaritic mythology, the storm god Baal defeats the seven-headed serpent Leviathan. Okay, similar to what we read this morning. The ancient Babylonians taught that Marduk, the god of light, kills the seven-headed dragon Tiamat, who had thrown down a third of the stars. In Greek mythology, there is a seven-headed hydra that is slain by Hercules. And probably the closest parallel is in Greco-Roman myth. They held that the goddess Leto, pregnant with Apollo, is pursued by the dragon Python. She is rescued by Poseidon, who places her safely on an island. After Apollo is born, he seeks out and slays Python. You see the similarity? International myth. So that leaves us with a question. Because the wrong reaction is to say, oh, see, John plagiarized ancient religions, and see, it's not true. He's simply borrowing and inserting it, so how can I trust anything the Scriptures say? That's the wrong reaction. But why does John seem to borrow so heavily from pagan mythology? And doesn't that play into sort of half of Satan's desires to kind of convince us that he's just a myth? John, under inspiration by the Holy Spirit, tells us that the woman and the dragon are what? He says this about both of them. They are signs. Okay, these are signs that point to something. A sign is not typically your destination. A sign tells you to keep going. And it tells you at what speed to keep going. It tells you how far away it is or that you're heading the right direction. That's what these are. These are signs to something. The woman is a great sign. The dragon, the great red dragon, is a sign. John, under inspiration by the Holy Spirit, refers to these as signs. You know, in his his gospel account, he also uses that word, Simeon, sign, often, to point to Jesus, but something they were missing about Jesus. So his signs and wonders pointed to his true nature. So where some people only saw the human Jesus, the signs are telling you this is the Son of God. So now we're missing something about the nature of the conflict, and these signs are going to point you to something. John is incorporating that same term both in his Gospel and now here in the Revelation. And the signs are similar in Revelation, referring either to divinely inspired symbols or familiar dramas depicting Spiritual realities. There's a term for this in actually recent missiology, which is the study of missions, and they have called it redemptive analogies. How many of you have heard of that term? A redemptive analogy. What they teach is that hidden among cultures, there usually exists some story, ritual, or tradition that provides a redemptive analogy, a sign within, sort of embedded in that culture to where you can point to the true realities that are in Christ. For example, and perhaps the man that used that term first, his name is Don Richardson. He wrote the book Peace Child, and he tells of the story of working among the Sawi people in Erie and Jaya. The Sawi were cannibalistic headhunters who honored treachery as a virtue. Don Richardson says when he told them the story about Judas betraying Jesus after three years of friendship, the Sawi people acclaimed Judas as the hero. And he's wondering, how in the world am I going to teach this people the, the beauty and the glory of God's love and redemption when they are honoring treachery? Missionary historian Ruth Tucker writes, As he learned the language and lived with the people, he became more aware of the gulf that separated his Christian worldview from the worldview of the Sawi. In their eyes, Judas, not Jesus, was the hero of the Gospels. Jesus was just the dupe to be laughed at. Eventually, Richardson discovered what he referred to as a redemptive analogy that pointed to the incarnate Christ Christ Far more clearly than any biblical passage alone could have done with them, what he discovered was the Sawi concept of the peace child. So they moved into this area, and the the, the tribal people had been battling. And the Richardsons threatened to leave until peace was restored, so what they did is they decided to go out to their enemies and have a ceremony which involved a peace child. And what they would do is that they would take one of their own newborn children and hand it to their enemy. And to live, to live among them as family, and that would secure peace. And the idea was, if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. Now do you see the redemptive analogy? And from that ceremony, Richardson preached Christ as the perfect peace child. In Revelation 12, John explains with mythical figures sort of this idea that has been held throughout ancient civilizations of a hope and a champion. They understand the evil. They've they, they represented him by often, sometimes, with a great red, red seven-headed dragon, which is on the gates of Ishtar. And so they have this concept, and it's as though John is playing into this mythical terminology to explain to an unbelieving readership the truths of the conflict. Here's the big idea, as we read it as believers, and really what should sort of start to stand out from Revelation 12. No satanic opposition or accusation will ultimately stand against those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It does not mean you won't be martyred, That does not mean you won't be slandered. That does not mean you won't be hated. But no satanic opposition or accusation will ultimately stand against those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. As the Apostle Peter explains, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And like the Apostle John said earlier in Revelation, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So for us this morning, as we open Revelation 12, and we're almost overwhelmed by these symbols, this is what should leap out. No satanic opposition or accusation will ultimately stand against those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's look at chapters 1 through 6. Conflict between the woman with her child and the dragon. That's what, that's what verses 1 through 6 put forward to you. This, this conflict, you have the, this beast, you have a woman, she's in pain, about ready to give birth to a child, and the dragon wants to devour which one of them? Initially, the child, yes. And it's hard not to start all of a sudden allowing the New Testament scriptures to sort of, uh, wash over your mind um, where, when Jesus is born, the kings, so the magi, they come and they bow down and they present gifts to, to whom? Mary or the child? To the child. Okay? And they worship Mary or the child? The child. And Herod is seeking to kill Mary or the child? The child, a matter of fact, you have that massacre of all those young children, which was a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And and so here you have this conflict between this beast and a child. A matter of fact, scripture is very clear to say it is a male child. First of all, this is a sign, look at verse one, and a great sign appeared in heaven. And he goes on to explain. Uh, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This threefold description seems to stem from Genesis 37, 1 through 9, from Joseph's dream that he had. Do you remember that? And where, you know, then he had another dream and they're all bowing down to worship him. And it, and it takes sort of the threefold description of the sun and the moon and the stars, um, probably indicating the 12 tribes of Israel. But as soon as you get that kind of stunning description of glory and dominion, you all of a sudden notice that she is in the pain of childbirth. And that takes you back to Genesis 3, where you have the promise of a rescuer, redeemer, Genesis 3, verse 15. But in the very next verse, God says that He's going to multiply pains in childbirth. And this is going to bring to your mind now the curse, the effects of the fall the penalty of sin immediately. So in the middle of this kind of promised Redeemer, you have the effects of the fall and pain and childbirth, and you see the glory of this woman as John sees her, but all of a sudden you sort of enter into this, this pain with her as she is struggling to give birth to a child. Then you have a great dragon. Look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay, so who is this? Because it's a sign pointing you to something, and there's this conflict between the woman and her child and a dragon. Well, the dragon represents Satan. The stars he sweeps out of heaven most likely refer to the fallen angels. The seven heads may. Do you hear the words I'm using? May, perhaps, most likely. That's on purpose. Because unless John gives us a direct interpretation of what he sees, we really don't know. The seven heads may refer to worldly kingdoms. It may just refer to a hideous monster. And the ten horns may refer to human kings, but it could simply be the description of a powerful monster. Satan is rightly called the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdoms of the air, and the god of this world. And verse 4 states, and this is the picture, this is what you're supposed to get. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Do you, do you feel the vulnerability of that image? When a lady is giving birth, Birth. She's very vulnerable. She's not concerned about anything else. And at that moment, there's this seven headed red dragon waiting to devour the newborn. Now we feel that image. And the original readership would have felt that image. This hideous beast. With diadems on each head. This is the power, the dominion he's, he's possessing to have. And he's about to swallow up the promised champion. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Well, then who's the child? If the woman is the nation of Israel or the promised godly seed through which Messiah would be born, And the dragon is Satan. The child is Christ. It is a male child. Christ is the one who is said to rule with a rod of iron. And immediately, and this is typical of apocalyptic writing, you have sort of these telescoping of events where he is born and immediately caught up. Did you notice that in the text? So he's born and he ascends, but there's a lot that happened in between that actually results in Satan's crushing Matter of fact, in Genesis three thirteen, God says to the serpent, or three fifteen, "He shall bruise your head." Now, if we get those correctly, why does John mention the wilderness? So you have perhaps the nation of Israel, through whom the Messiah is going to be born. You have Satan ready to devour the child, the only hope of the world, and then you have. The child who is Jesus Christ. So what does the wilderness have to do with this? You know, as you're looking at this conflict between the woman with her child and the great red dragon. It seems to refer back to the first exodus where Israel became a nation and was protected. Even under great oppression, great political oppression, even in enslavement, they were protected and they were delivered. Exodus means a going out. And part of that going out involved signs and wonders. And the final sign was the death of the firstborn male, through which they gave it a name. Out of all the signs and wonders, only this one gets a name, and they called it the Passover. And it was through that blood ceremony that the death angel passed over, and finally Pharaoh let these people go out into the wilderness, certainly probably to die. John has used wilderness terminology before. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 3, just before probably the most popular verse in the world, John 3.16, he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Almost projecting towards a second, if you would, a second wilderness-wandering Passover exodus. He says this in John 6. This is where Jesus preaches the sermon where you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody stops following him. But he says in this passage, "...our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, "...truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven." For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So in this this wilderness, there is this second Sort of Exodus. It's very interesting that Luke records on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter and James and John, and these, these two Old Testament characters appear. You have Moses and Elijah, and, and Luke alone records this. Luke says that they discussed with him his departure. Here Jesus is transfigured before them. And what Moses, sort of the representative of the law, and Elijah, the representative of the prophets, and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, they are talking about this new exodus, this departure. And yet in this passage you have, he's born and he departs. And sort of this new wilderness wandering in exodus. So we looked at the conflict between the woman and her child and the dragon. We're going to move into a new section. There's conflict in heaven. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, John shifts to a heavenly perspective of the signs just described. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. There is no true dualism between God and Satan. You understand what I mean by that? So there's no real struggle between, there's no real ultimate struggle between the darkness and the light. Right? And you've got you've got films that portray this clearly, as though sort of the end still hangs in the balances, depending on who proves to be stronger. Matter of fact, the battle isn't even here directly as John sees it. It's not Satan against who. See, that's no contest. It's not Satan against God, it's Satan against Another angel, and it's Michael and his an archangel, his arch or Michael and his angels fighting against the d- dragon and his angels, and they were defeated. Verse eight, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So you have this war in heaven portrayed through this in- angelic battle. Note this: four times this phrase is used. Okay, in short order, four times it says this. He was. Do you see that? He was what? Okay, He was defeated. Four times it's going to use this phrasing. He was thrown down. Either through losing that battle with Michael and his angels or through God intervening and suddenly, just like that. a matter of fact, Jesus told his disciples, remember when he sent out uh, these teams of evangelists and they come back and they're rejoicing that even the devils are obeying them. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the demons are listening to you. He says, This is what Jesus says I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Don't rejoice in a lesser power. Don't rejoice that a lesser power is obeying you in the name of Jesus. I saw Satan, I was there, and I saw Satan thrown down. You want to rejoice in something? You rejoice in God on his throne. You rejoice in the sovereign creator. Matter of fact, he says, you rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven because that's who the king is. I and mean, this is an amazing. John wrote in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why the dragon is waiting to devour this child. He knows that the son, the champion, has arrived to rescue us and to crush Satan. What's interesting in this section, this war in heaven, this conflict in heaven, 7 through 12, is the character of Satan that is revealed. Satan is a master of disguises, deceptions, and diversions. And Scripture right here in John's vision, even though you've got this, this vivid, this, you know, these vivid images, what, what Scripture does right now, it's going to pull the curtain back And it's going to point to Satan and say, This is who he really is. And there's these all these descriptions just start to come to the surface. In verses seven and nine, he is called the dragon. The dragon, if you look up the the, the actual word, what it means, it means fabulous serpent. Something that when you look at it, it's stunning. The title Dragon stresses the cruel, vicious, and bloodthirsty character of Satan. The closest thing I could think of was the Nile crocodile in Africa of this dragon, master of ambush, and he's purposely undetected, waiting for the next villager to come down and draw water. So when this idea of dragon is used, it's not sort of like this you know, cute little... Animated creature that people ride on its back. It is supposed to describe this bloodthirsty character of Satan. In verse 9, the second description that is used is that ancient serpent. Very interesting term. Not just the serpent, but that ancient serpent. A term saying, now look back. Look back to say, this is an ancient description of the crookedness and deceitfulness. The title deliberately brings back images of the Garden of Eden and the fall. Ancient serpent. He came in as a serpent. I read recently where a Delta Force commander wrote this, the most effective weapon on any battlefield. We're talking about conflict here. Conflict on the earth, conflict in heaven. He says the most effective weapon on any battlefield is our minds, Ability to recognize life's underlying patterns. If you learn the patterns of your enemy, you can defeat your enemy. He's the ancient serpent. He has certain patterns. Matter of fact, his patterns are at work among us today. His patterns are still effective. He uses sexual temptation. He's used it ever since ancient times, and it still works. He uses greed. He uses bloodthirstiness. He uses anger. And he uses hate. And we're like, oh, yeah, we know that. We know that. But we're still duped by him. Grant Osborne states, everything Satan does is merely a parody or imitation of what God has already done. And this is how he's worked From days of old, listen to what he says. His diadem's crowns are a copy of Christ's crowns. The beast's mortal wound that is healed in chapter 13 imitates Christ's resurrection. The great miraculous signs of the second beast in chapter 13 and chapter 16 imitate the sign miracles of John's gospel. And the mark of the beast in chapter 13 parodies God's sealing of the saints. This is an ancient foe. He has certain patterns. Satan never creates. Satan perverts and destroys. Satan didn't create marriage, but he will pervert and he will destroy marriage. Satan didn't create human sexuality. That is a beautiful gift of God. But what Satan does is he comes and he perverts it and he debases it. He's a predictable enemy who follows certain patterns. 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul states, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Next he is called the devil. The devil means slanderer or defamer. Anytime slander exists, at its root is the devil. If slander exists among brothers and sisters in Christ, its root is not the Holy Spirit. Its root is the devil. Matter of fact, John uh, in John eight forty four, Jesus, in talking to unbelieving religious people, uses this term. He looks at them and he says You are of your father, the devil, the defamer, the slanderer, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then Peter actually takes this term and he attaches it to one of the most dangerous creatures of his time, the lion. And he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And again, he wants you to believe on one hand that he is a myth. And Revelation 12 sort of pulls back the curtain and says, no, he's real. He's a spirit being. You're not going to go out today and see a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. But what you will see is hate, you will see bitterness, you will see racism, you will see abortion, you will see murder, you will see genocide, and the curtain is pulled back and you're like told again in this this war and this conflict, Satan is a reality, folks. See it's not just that you know we've chosen Jesus and they've chosen Buddha and they want to follow Muhammad no Jesus is the champion the only one who can crush the serpent's head the only one therefore he is worshiped Next he is called Satan in verse 9 Satan means adversary or evil opponent and his His adversarial attempts to seduce and destroy you will not always be easily detected because the Apostle Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan, there's that word, the title, disguises himself as an angel of light. So sometimes it'll look so opulently religious, but it's satanic. Remember what Satan did when he was trying to seduce our Lord. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. How religious. And then he quotes Scripture. How religious. But it's satanic. Don't ever wonder somehow that false teaching is attractive or it's partly good. It's not. It's satanic. Then you have in verse 9, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. And that deception is seen through temptation and lies. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what Satan's work does. It blinds people to the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh no, he'll get people fixated on religion. But he will blind them from the glory of Jesus Christ, from the light of the gospel. He is a liar and the father of lies. I mean, you think about it. In a perfect environment, he came in as a deceiver and he caused Eve, in a perfect environment, to doubt God's goodness. And he caused Eve to believe his lies over God's promises. Don't ever underestimate this foe, this ancient foe who is the deceiver of the whole world. Next in verse 10, I mean, if you just pause here, you can see this becomes a dominant feature of exposing the character of Satan and why this conflict exists. In verse 10, he's called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Very interesting phrase. At its root here, there's a forensic aspect to this. It's it's, it's as though Satan appears in a courtroom next to you and he accuses you in our in our in our setting this morning, just imagine that if you were, if you had to walk up here this morning, say so it's like a courtroom, a forensic, and Satan, and you know this ahead of time, he's not going to make up lies, Kazing. He's going to go against his own character. He's actually he's only going to tell the truth about what you thought and did this week, just the truth. And he's going to tell everybody here, every website, every motive. Everything said in the privacy of your home about somebody else. How are you feeling about that right now? Satan comes alongside, and there's this forensic idea, and he accuses you, and he doesn't have to accuse us with lies. All he has to do is accuse us with the truth. Matter of fact, you see this in Job, where Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And of course, he comes a second time and he says, skin for skin, touch him physically, he'll curse you. Then you have this sort of this drama of Job that unfolds in an interesting account. You have this high priest in Zechariah 3, 1 to 5 named Joshua. And it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Isn't that what we are? A brand, a twig that's on fire, it's already smoking and embering, and it's pulled out and saved? Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with what? Filthy garments. And that's the truth about each of us, isn't it? That's how we stand, apart from Christ, before the Lord, in filthy garments. And Satan comes along and forensically says, see guilty, defiled, dirty. And I love this picture in Zechariah. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. No satanic opposition or accusation will ultimately stand against those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. In verse 12, it says this, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he has no place in heaven. He's now thrown down to the earth because he knows his time is short. Satan possesses a certain amount of knowledge. And though he is defeated, he is still dangerous. I love what Jesus says. and John records this in John 14, verse 30. He says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you. Jesus is now moving towards the cross, the work of the cross. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And listen to this statement. But he has no claim on me. John now moves into sort of a... How Satan has been conquered. Look at verse 11, probably the most familiar verse in the entire chapter. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's a verbal witness, by the way. That's what testimony means in Revelation. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And it seems as though you have the picture now, perhaps, of the church from the from the seven churches earlier on, and the conquering of this destroyer, and how they are conquering him, is in the work of Christ and in their witness about his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his enthronement. And they are conquering them and sometimes that witness results in their what? In their death. And it's not that they don't care, but it's that they don't value life more than they value faithfulness to the Lamb of God. Believers overcome the accuser by the word of their testimony. And believers overcome first by, through the cross by the blood of the Lamb, and then third by not loving their lives so much that they were afraid to die this helps us understand some of Jesus' teaching that has always sort of posed a problem for people. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, and hate who? Father and mother? Son and daughter? What does he mean by that? That if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you need to love everything less than you love him. And that's exactly what he is communicating here They conquer by not loving their lives so much that they weren't afraid to die. Mark 8.35, Jesus teaches, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In Hebrews, as it's talking about this life of faith, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And that sounds like a wasted life, doesn't it? So you died in faith, but you didn't receive what was promised. Is that a wasted life? This whole time you said you believed and you believed, but you know, it never really panned out. You were always made fun of. You were always weak. You were never successful. If you believe that is a wasted lie, then you have believed a satanic or a wasted life. You have believed believed in a satanic lie. Because listen to what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. It's that idea of an exodus from which they had gone out. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's why these people are not afraid to die. Because their home is still future. The city is still future. And the city of God and the city of Babylon cannot coexist, not without tension. And then there's this response in verse 12. Some have called this a hymn. uh, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan has no reach there. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. For the time left, there will be great tribulation for people who follow in the godly seed, for people in the church. The heavens rejoice, the earth and the sea are warned. And then finally, the last section, conflict on earth. Look at verses 13 to 17. And he's sort of like he's connecting this to that first paragraph with that little interlude where you see this war in heaven. And now he's picking up um, where he had been thrown down. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. So the woman actually is given wings. This isn't an eagle that's swooping down and picking her up. That's the image that John sees in the vision. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The dragon thrown out of heaven now pursues and persecutes the godly remnant. It calls to mind the exodus where Israel flees, into the wilderness from the chariots of Pharaoh. And you have them fleeing through the Red Sea and the waves crashing in on the enemy. Matter of fact, it's very interesting how they speak of that situation. In Exodus nineteen four, listen to what Moses says you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. Deuteronomy 32. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its heights. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. So here you have this picture of this woman. Through the initial exodus going out into the wilderness and God protecting them like an eagle actually giving her the wings of an eagle. And the imagery there is God crushing Satan's pursuit and persecution. One final comment on sort of an exegetical difficulty. What does it mean that the serpent poured out water out of his mouth like a river? I mean, following all the vivid imagery, we get to this point and we're just, we're almost overwhelmed I mean, this is, this is amazing. And now, no, there's another image. And he sort of spews out this river. And it seems to be a river of lies and deceit. And it almost consumes Israel in the wilderness. And you have this idea where the ground opens up and swallows Korah. Remember how the ground comes to their aid. It says this, When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of of, of Abiram. In Exodus 15, 12, he describes the events at the Red Sea. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Sort of a reference back to the Red Sea again where Satan is trying to destroy this young people. Divine judgment And divine protection. Two sides of the same coin. Heads or tails depends not on chance, but on your relationship to God in Christ. And then finally, verse 17, the final verse. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, this godly seed that stems from this nation of Israel, from the promise of Genesis 3.15. On those who keep the commandments of God And hold to the testimony of Jesus. So that includes us. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Who stood on the sand of the sea? The great red dragon with seven heads, waiting to devour. Two chapters earlier, who places one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea? A great angel with this little scroll open, and God is saying, No, I still have dominion there, I'm still sovereign. I'm still king. In conclusion, there are three defeats of the dragon in Revelation 12. He fails to kill the Christ child. He fails in his battle against Michael and to secure a place in heaven. And he fails in an attempt to destroy the woman and the godly seed, like the church there under God's divine hand of protection. How do we respond? We're going to sing a hymn this morning with, O church arise, but do we understand as a church? That there is conflict right now. When you go through those doors, that is not a playground. That is not a video game. You don't get another life. And for us to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Do you believe that? In that same book, the Apostle Paul writes that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked, and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When we leave here today, and when we go to work tomorrow, and when we rub up against other people this week, there are people whose minds have been blinded, who live in darkness, and they need the light to shine. And you are the light. The church is the light that sits on a hill and provides light to people in darkness. And finally, the Apostle Paul writes, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he's writing to the church, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. No satanic opposition or accusation will ultimately stand against those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to invite our, mission, our music team forward. And we're going to pause for about 30 seconds to respond through prayer, and then we are going to stand together and sing, O Church, Arise. In light of this conflict on earth and conflict in heaven and conflict back on earth with the church, we are called to mission, to make disciples, to shine as lights, to be innocent and pure in a crooked and twisted generation. How much more should the light be shining right now as darkness is enveloping our schools and our politics and everything else? So let's bow our heads and calm our hearts and ask God for help. And then let's sing together.